parading into Jerusalem with throngs of people all around them, laying down their coats, waving palm branches. What a juxtaposition for us on Palm Sunday of 2020. I mean, wouldn't it be great outside to go and, and have a parade right now? I mean, I, I feel like we need a parade about right now. Be out there with our family and our friends, shoulder to shoulder, arms raised, celebrating and cheering. Maybe when all this is done, we can get us a parade in town to celebrate. Parades are fun. They're exciting. You know, and, and, and just before all that social distancing stuff went into effect, my family and I were in Disney World. We were there when it closed down on us. And we got to see a parade at Magic Kingdom. And if you've ever been to Disney World, those parades are spectacular. The floats are technological wonders. They're colorful. You've got all the princesses, all the Disney characters singing and dancing. Kids everywhere just smiling and laughing. It's a fun parade. But the parade 2,000 years ago wasn't anything like a Disney parade. It wasn't like a Christmas parade. If anything, it was more like a ticker tape parade. You know the ticker tape parades that, that go down uh, Broadway there in Manhattan to celebrate national heroes. Whether it's uh, throngs that are, that are giving their appreciation to soldiers and generals after winning a war, or it's Olympic athletes who've brought home the gold medal for our country. Or maybe it's those heroic astronauts who who broke all kinds of records and did the unthinkable and finally landed on the moon. Such larger-than-life men and women are driven down Broadway through what's called the Canyon of Heroes, and they're celebrated. People cheering, waving flags, people in the windows throwing confetti like ticker tape out the windows. That's more like the kind of parade that Jesus marshaled on the day we call Palm Sunday. But this wasn't just an impromptu parade. Like most parades, it required some preparation. And it also wasn't all celebration and praise either. Sort of like those ticker tape parades sometimes were. There was a twinge of sadness, a recognition of sacrifice, a joy mixed with tears. So I want us to look at Luke's account. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at Luke's account of this not a ticker tape, but a coats and palm branches parade. And I want us to look at three different phases of Jesus' journey to the cross as He has come into Jerusalem. And with each of these steps that He takes, I've got a question for us to consider. The first we see is a season of preparation. Look with me at Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. You know, important people like 
kings and presidents and even just celebrities, they don't go anywhere without there being a lot of preparation. And, of course, I guess we could say the same thing for us today. We aren't going much of anywhere without lots of preparation. But, of course, it wasn't protection against a virus that Jesus was concerned with. It was protection against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John's Gospel tells us that the Jewish leaders had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And worse than that, because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and had caused such an uproar by doing that, it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And so that's where Luke's story picks up. Jesus is now making preparation for this final trip into the holy city. Jesus isn't planning for the kind of parade you might think. I want you to notice something. Imagine this. Imagine this. You're planning a ticker tape parade for some larger-than-life American hero, for someone maybe that you think is going to save the day, some Superman-like figure, and you want to honor and celebrate this person with a ticker tape parade, what kind of vehicle would you put him in? Maybe the, the newest, fastest, sleekest sports car? Maybe a limousine? Maybe an old classic? Maybe put him on a tank? But what Jesus does is totally opposite of what we're thinking about. Jesus made preparation to ride into Jerusalem in the first century equivalent of a Ford Focus. Nothing that spectacular, nothing that special. He's riding on the colt of a donkey. Jesus wanted to demonstrate the uniqueness of his kingship and his kingdom. So notice two things about this animal that Jesus chooses. First, he said it had never been ridden on before. Now, this was actually a stipulation in the Old Testament law for a sacrificial animal. They could not sacrifice an animal that had been ridden upon. And so Jesus chose this animal to symbolize his mission in Jerusalem. He was coming to be the Passover lamb. But the second thing, it was the cult of a donkey. See, it was customary for a conquering king to ride into the city that he vanquished. He vanquishes the city, he's going to ride into it. Now, if he rides in on some great white stallion, a war horse, that means he's coming to judge, he's coming to destroy. But if he comes riding in on a donkey, that's a symbol of peace. He's coming in peace. Now, when we look in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, David has anointed his son Solomon to succeed him on the throne. And he parades him through the city on David's own donkey to show that Solomon had peacefully ascended to the throne. And then we look ahead into Zechariah 9.9, where the prophet there says of the coming Messiah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout! daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So in his preparation, Jesus was purposefully declaring some important truths about his nature as the Messiah and his mission, what he was coming to do. Jesus was saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm fulfilling prophecy. He was saying, yes, I am the son of David, the king of kings, the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus was saying, I'm coming not to conquer. I'm coming in peace. I'm coming not to conquer. I'm coming to die as the ultimate Passover lamb. But Jesus in his preparations, was also not just trying to declare something. He was trying to protect his followers. Jesus quietly lines up everything. He's got secret meetings. He's prearranged things with the owners of this donkey. He's got these different secret signs. You'll see more of that later in the week as the disciples are preparing for Passover. Jesus obviously cares about the safety of his followers. That kind of made me think about what we're doing today as we're sheltering in place. As we're practicing all of this social distancing, you know, we're not caving to man-made laws. We're not succumbing to secular rulers, as some people are arguing, nor are we showing a lack of faith. Rather, we're showing concern and care for our neighbors and for the body of Christ. Yes, we want to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we are proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're shouting loud Hosanna's praise. But like Jesus, we're going to be smart about it. We want to protect people from needless harm. Now, does that mean we're taking the easy way out? No. Does it mean that Jesus isn't still asking us to be sacrificial in our service? No. Look in this story at all the things. Even though Jesus was trying to protect the people, look at the things the people gave to Jesus. A family gave up their young donkey for Jesus to ride on. The crowds of people were literally taking the cloaks off their backs and spreading them out on the road for Jesus and that donkey to walk on. Can you imagine how filthy and ruined those garments must have been? after they're laying in the dirt and and a donkey's walking on them and and doing the things that donkeys do and then crowds of people are swarming behind Jesus along the way walking on all those cloaks. Those people weren't getting those clothes back. They were giving them up for Jesus. So the question for us today is we consider the ways in which right now we're preparing even to celebrate Easter. As we consider the ways that we're preparing to make Jesus known to our family and our friends. What are you willing to give to Jesus? What am I willing to give to Jesus? Because we are living in a season of preparation. And I don't just mean Holy Week leading up to Easter. I mean that we are awaiting the ultimate triumphant entry when Jesus Christ will return once and for all and He will ride that white stallion into Jerusalem to rule and to reign forevermore. We're in that season of preparation. And what are you going to give to Jesus to make Him known to your family and friends, to your co-workers and classmates? What are you going to give to Jesus that He might be known to your neighbors and to the nations? This is how we make preparations for Jesus. By being His ambassadors. By proclaiming, The King is coming! The King is coming! Praise God, He's coming for me. Is He coming for you? 
We are in a season of preparation. But the second part of the story we see is that there is a reason for celebration. Let's pick that up in verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones would cry out. The people, you see, they made their own preparation for their king by laying the branches and the clothes on the ground for him to ride on. They praised him as the righteous king who was bringing salvation. Jesus is the son of David. And he has ascended to the throne of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And he wasn't coming to judge or destroy. He came in peace to save and restore You know, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus permitted such public displays of His kingship and His deity. Normally, Jesus avoided the crowds. And when Jesus performed miracles, He told the people to keep it quiet and not tell anyone about it. And why would Jesus do this? Well, as Jesus would often say, my time has not yet come. It wasn't the moment for that. But now, Jesus has set His face toward Jerusalem. He is coming for the very reason that He entered into human history. He's coming to die for the sins of the world. Now, do the people in this crowd really understand why they're welcoming Jesus? Do they really get why they're shouting praises to Him? Probably not. His own disciples didn't even fully understand what He was about to do. And and even as they are quoting Old Testament prophecy... They don't fully understand, though they think they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But see, their understanding of the nature and mission of the Messiah was all wrong. They thought the Messiah was going to come in. They thought Jesus was going to come in and overthrow Rome. He was going to chase the Romans out of Jerusalem. He was going to restore the glory of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel through military might. They had no idea that they were welcoming These these were Passover pilgrims. They had come for the Passover and they had no idea they were welcoming the Passover lamb into the city. So Jesus allowed this celebration. One, to fulfill prophecy. Two, to proclaim what the Messiah was really all about by riding on the colt of a donkey. I don't think the people quite picked up on that and got it, but Jesus also did it to prompt the religious leaders to act. Jesus was forcing the hand of the Pharisees and the Sadducees leading to his arrest and crucifixion. Even from the beginning, even from Palm Sunday, Jesus was no victim. He was calling the shots. Matthew's gospel tells us that the religious leaders wanted to wait until after Passover had had come and gone before they acted against Jesus. But God had ordained that Jesus was going to die as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But when they saw this great celebration, the Pharisees just couldn't stand it anymore. They, they got so angry and so fed up, and then Jesus refused to rebuke the crowds, saying even the stones would cry out if the people kept silent. And even that itself, when Jesus was quoting that from the Old Testament, he was claiming his deity as the Son of God. 
So as the crowd celebrated Jesus, they were declaring that he was more than a baby in a manger. They were declaring he was more than some teacher from Galilee working miracles. He was a royal figure entering a royal city on the royal road. He came as God's Messiah, the chosen king. He came to bring peace. A peace that only heaven can establish. And it was a peace that once established in heaven could never be negated on the earth. You know, Luke, if you go back to Luke chapter 2, Luke opens the gospel account with the angels singing to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So as Jesus makes his triumphant entry into this world, Angels are singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And now here at the close of Luke's gospel, the people celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, those same angels that were rejoicing with the shepherds about peace coming to earth, they are now witnessing in the heavens God making peace with humanity. Restoring that relationship. And as humanity praises the king on the donkey, heaven glories in God's great work of salvation. My question for us today, as we think about celebrating Jesus, it's a simple question. Do you know why Jesus came? Why do you celebrate? Why do you worship Jesus? I mean, is Easter and Palm Sunday and all this, is it just another religious holiday for you? Do you come and worship because that's how you were raised and it's always what you've done? Or do you know the saving power of the Lamb of God who came to take away your sin and mine? Why do you celebrate Jesus? And this brings us to the third movement in this story, and it's unexpected. It's jarring in its contrast with the celebration of the crowds. It's a brief but powerful moment of lamentation. Let's pick it up in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We focus on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but we often overlook the fact that it was actually a tearful entry for Jesus. I mean, while the disciples and the crowds are singing and shouting, Jesus is actually weeping over the city to which he enters. This is only, only the second time in all of the New Testament that Jesus has recorded weeping. The other being at his friend Lazarus's death. And while at Lazarus's tomb, Jesus wept openly for the people to hear, here it's a quiet moment. Jesus is mourning and lamenting the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' mourning for Jerusalem really echoes the prophet Jeremiah as he wept 
bitterly over Jerusalem as the Babylonians were destroying it. And it's also a mirror image of Jonah, you know, sitting on a hillside overlooking Nineveh, gleefully waiting for God to destroy it. Jesus is coming down the hill of the Mount of Olives, weeping over Jerusalem, because she has brought this destruction upon herself. Warren Wearsby points out that no matter where Jesus looked, he found reasons to weep for the Jewish people. Looking back, Jesus saw how the nation had wasted its opportunities. It had been ignorant of God's long-suffering patience. It was Jerusalem that had killed the prophets of God who kept coming to warn the people to turn away from their idolatry and their faithfulness to the ever-faithful God. And they had, as Jesus said, failed to recognize the time of God's coming. Looking within the hearts of the people, Jesus saw their spiritual ignorance, their blindness. I mean, they should have known who He was since God had revealed Himself to the people of Israel through Scripture, through prophets. As Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. Looking around. Jesus saw so much religious activity that had so little power in people's lives. The temple had become a den of thieves. The religious leaders were plotting to have Him killed. The teachers of the law who were supposed to be pointing people to God instead were burdening the people. Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And as Jesus was now especially looking ahead into the future, he wept because he could see the terrible judgment coming to the people of Israel, especially to Jerusalem and the temple. And in about 40 years, in A.D. 70, the Roman army would descend upon Jerusalem and lay siege to it for 143 days. They would kill 600,000 Jews. They would leave Jerusalem in ruins and they would destroy the temple completely. What brought such a terrible act of judgment on the people of Israel? God's people had committed the worst act of rejection. They refused to allow the Son of God, their Messiah, to reign over them. Or as John wrote, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. And so Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem with tears. You know, often the triumphs of life come through pain and through suffering. Even all those ticker tape parades, they often come at great prices. They come because enormous sacrifices had been made, inhuman acts of bravery and heroism. The triumphs almost always come through tears. And how much more so for Jesus? He would triumph over sin, death, and the grave. But first he'd be betrayed, denied, and abandoned by his closest friends and followers. 
First, Jesus would be arrested, falsely accused and convicted, beaten and mocked. First, Jesus would bear on Calvary all of our sin, guilt and shame. First, Jesus would be wounded for our transgressions and He would bear the wrath of a holy God against our sin. First, come the tears of Good Friday and then the triumph of Easter Sunday. The question for us, as we think about Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, what will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus wept because His people had rejected Him. And they would face judgment for that. But it was a temporal judgment. It was buildings destroyed. It was a city destroyed. But there's a far worse judgment that awaits those who reject the gift of God. And that is the destruction of body and soul in hell for all of eternity. I pray that you will accept His free and gracious gift. That you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. For God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son so that if you would believe in Him, would trust in Him and the work that He did on the cross for you, you would not perish but have everlasting life. There is a fourth act to this first part of the Holy Week story. We've looked at the season of preparation and we've asked ourselves, what will I give to Jesus? What will I give to His mission? We've looked at the reason for celebration and we've asked ourselves, do I understand why I worship Jesus? Why do I celebrate Jesus? And we've looked at this moment of lamentation and we've asked ourselves, what have I done with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? Will I follow Him? Will I accept Him? Or will I turn from Him and reject Him? But there's a fourth aspect of this in verses 45 through 48. It's an act of purification. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. See, this part of the story is traditionally observed on Monday of Holy Week. So for you, that's going to be tomorrow. Luke doesn't structure his story this way. But as you read the other Gospels, you realize that after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went back to Bethany. He spent the night and he came back the next day and he entered into the temple. And so we read that part of the story. We focus on that on Monday of Holy Week. And so I'm going to invite you to go online tomorrow. I'm going to do a devotional on this part of the story uh, tomorrow, and I hope that you will watch that and listen to that. And we're going to look at this act of purification that Jesus does in the temple, and we're going to ask ourselves, what areas of my life do I need to ask Jesus to cleanse? What are the things in my life I need Him to cast out? Because they have no place in a person of God. I hope you'll watch that tomorrow. Frederick Beekner wrote about Palm Sunday. It's a beautiful passage. Despair and hope. They travel the road to Jerusalem together. As together they travel the road we take. Despair 
at what in our madness we are bringing down on our own heads. And hope in Him who travels the road with us and for us. Hope in the King who approaches every human heart like a city. And it is a very great hope, as hope goes, and well worth all our singing and dancing and sad little palms, because not even death can prevail against this King. And not even the end of the world, when end it does, will be the end of Him and of the mystery and majesty of His love. Amen. No matter your despair today, no matter what might be driving you mad, know that there is hope in Jesus. And know that Jesus is coming to the wall of your heart, to the gates of your heart, and He wants to come in. And the question for you is, will you open wide those gates for the King of glory to come in? He wants to come into your life and transform you. And I pray that you will do that. Listen, as we come to the end, and we're going to pray here in just a moment and sing, but you know, you're watching from home or from wherever you are. You can't really come down front and respond. So let me say this. If you have any questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you'll give me a call at First Baptist Church. Message me on Facebook. Send me an email. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about where you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe God has laid some other decision on your heart. Uh, We've had some people call and say, hey, when we all come back together again, we're ready to join the church. Maybe God's laying that on your heart. Maybe God is making you think about somebody in your life that you need to be making preparation for Jesus to come to them. You need to be going to them and sharing with them the good news so they can open the gates of their heart and welcome Jesus in. Whatever it is, I pray that you'll make that right decision. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. Your mercy displayed on the cross of Christ. Your grace that comes into every heart that turns from sin and trusts in You for salvation, for forgiveness, for a fresh start. Father, if there's people out there right now that have any question in their mind about where they stand with You, Father, I pray they will pick up that phone and make a call to somebody, to me, to a friend, to a family member, to somebody that's been sharing Jesus with them and say, I'm ready. I want to know that I know that I belong to Jesus. I want to make sure that I've welcomed Him into my heart. Lord, we love You. We thank You for what You have done for us. And we pray You would help us as we go into this holy week in unusual circumstances to focus on ways that we can worship You, that we can spend time in Your Word, that we can be an encouragement to others, that we can reach out with the gospel and give hope. In Jesus' name we pray.